Let's look at Mark 13. Now, I'm gonna do a geography lesson using some slides, and then we're gonna do a lot of reading, okay? Y'all ready for this? All right, here's geography. Now, I like this painting. This is Yeshua standing here on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking west towards the city of Jerusalem, back there, and the sun is setting to the west there, and you see that's the temple. This is the Temple Mount right here. I like this painting, it's a very beautiful painting. And um, here is what it may have looked like in the first century. We have the highest points in the city of Jerusalem proper. This is Mount Moriah, this is the Temple Mount here. This is what we would call Herod's Temple. This is about 36 acres of land. Can you picture 36 acres? It's big, right? And um, you walk up there, it's, it's um, right now, you know, there's the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque is over here. But there's a big grove of trees over there, which trees were forbidden on the Temple Mount at the time. But anyways, it's a, it's a sprawling complex. And over here, we have the Fortress of Antonia, where there would be a big garrison of Roman soldiers. And uh, they can look down and see the sacrifices happening inside the temple. The temple was facing east. The doors of the temple faced east. And then coming down here, there's a steep hill leading down this road. And this is the Pool of Siloam. That, that would be familiar to you if you know about some of Yeshua's miracles, right? And then underground here is Hezekiah's Tunnel that connects the Gihon Spring down to the Pool of Siloam, uh, so that if the city of Jerusalem were ever laid on, on, on siege, right, uh, that they would have like an indefinite amount of water inside the city that they could get Hezekiah's Tunnel. I've walked through Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a really neat experience. This is the upper city. This is like kind of where the rich people live. This is where Caiaphas' house was, the high priest. This is the lower city. And then this is the city of David down here. David's palace, the ruins of the palace are still there to this day. And um, over here, we have the Kidron Valley. This would have been uh, a very, this is like the, the ancient town dump where they would have hauled trash out and where they would have burned trash and there would be a lot of trash and refuse burning and, and wild dogs digging through trash, people that are beggars, crazy and demon-possessed people digging through the trash and looking for scraps of food to eat. That would have been happening down here in the Kidron Valley. It's kind of like a place that you could say the fires never die and the worm is never quenched. It's a picture of hell. It became called Gehinom, Gehinom, which is like Gehenna, which is like hell, he translated into English. So this is like a picture of hell down here. Then on this side over here, this, this, this hill, you have what's called the Mount of Olives. Over here, right now, present day, you have about 70 to 80,000 people. We don't really even know for sure how many people are buried on that, on that hillside right here. Tons and tons of graves. Okay? And they're all facing this direction towards the, towards the city of Jerusalem because you know, it's, it's a, um, the idea that when the Messiah comes, he will inaugurate this resurrection of the dead and everyone will stand up. Um, you know, it, it, how many of you drove, through a, uh, drove by a cemetery today on your way here? I did. All the graves face which direction? East. East, towards the city of Jerusalem, right? Because the, it's the expectation when Messiah comes, the dead and Messiah will rise. Well, in the Jewish eschatology, it's the same thing. So a lot of this is a very... Very uh, contested, I guess maybe sought after place to bury Jewish dead right here on the Mount of Olives. There's actually used to be a bridge. I think I have it in the map here. No, I don't. There actually used to be a bridge that would stretch across because up here on the Mount of Olives, there's one sacrifice that had to play, take place. What was that? Does anybody know? The red, the red heifer. Good. You guys are like students of the Bible. Look at that. The red heifer sacrifice had to take place up here. We got a problem because in the high priest or the priests that are doing the red heifer sacrifice are walking back to the, to the city of Jerusalem, back into the temple, they're walking through tens of thousands of graves, right? So they built a, a bridge called the Derek HaKohanim, the way of the priests. But it's not there in that photo. 
This is kind of like a CGI version of the temple and what it would look like. These are the southern steps down here. This is where they would have sang the Hallel as they're ascending the, the songs of ascent on Passover, leading up to Passover, coming into the temple. This right here is Solomon's colonnade. And uh, over here, you have the court of the Gentiles. And then there's a tiny little wall about three foot high that runs right here. It's called the Soreg. The Soreg is where Gentiles had to stop, but Israelites could continue if you were a, a covenant member of Israel. If you weren't a covenant member of Israel, you could pass your offering off to someone who was a Levite. They would take it in and they would pass it off to a Kohen and they would put it on the altar for you. But over here, this is the Antonia Fortress. This is like an army barracks for the Roman army over here. And so you have a, like a hornet's nest of Roman uh, infantrymen, cavalry stationed right here in Antonia. And this is the temple itself right here, the Beit Hamikdash. You have the um, court of women and then you have the court of priests right there. But you guys know the Western Wall? You ever seen the, the Wailing Wall? This is something called the Western Kotel, right? Anybody ever been there? Oh, cool, a lot of, a lot of you. Okay, that's, that's this right here, okay? Right here. That, that's all that's remained so far that we can, we can actually see and get. It's the closest you can get to the Holy of Holies and legally pray. If you get up on the Temple Mount and you try to pray, they'll kick you off and ban you for life. Um, unless you're Muslim, of course. But this is, this is Robinson's Arch. You can now go into Robinson's Arch down here, and there's a long tunnel that extends down here. That's where we have found some of the, uh, the, the Herodian stones that are like the sizes, size of like school buses in, in there under that arch. Really fascinating stuff. But to get up on the Temple Mount, there's a bridge about where this one is now. You can get up on the Temple Mount between the Muslim prayer times and, um, and go toward the Temple Mount itself. All right, let me, uh, let's go back to the Mount of Olives. I think I've got a video here. I want to show you. I took this, uh, and the sound's not going to work, but it gives you an idea. So there's a guy on a bike down there. You see the guy? It gives you an idea of the elevation change between the Mount of Olives. I'm going to expand this out so you can see it. Zach, would you feel the front lights for me? Not the projector, but the front lights. I think people will be able to see that. I want, I want you to appreciate the elevation change. There's a dude on a bike down there. This is the, the um, Arabic, Arab village of Silwain over here. But I'm standing with my back to the Temple Mount, and I'm looking out across the Kidron Valley, which is right here. Which, the Arabs call this valley the Valley of Fire, by the way. But these are tombs down here, these are tombs all here. You see all these little stones? These are all headstones. That's uh, Zachariah's tomb. Uh, the prophet Zechariah, and that's the top of the mountain of all. You see how steep that is, though? You guys, can you get a better appreciation for that? I want to play that video to give you. That's, that's Zechariah's tomb. Um, Absalom's pillar is over there. These are caves. These are all burial caves. But all those tan, tannish colored stones, those are all tombs. Those are all graves of people. I'll play it one more time for you guys. See the guy on the bike? See how small he is? So I'm, I'm not even at the top of the temple now. I'm standing about halfway down the Temple Mount. So to walk down the Temple Mount and up the Mount of Olives is a very strenuous process, and vice versa. To walk from the Mount of Olives back up the Temple Mount is a very strenuous process. Uh, when I pan over left again, I'll show you where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So you got the Kidron Valley. The, these are, this is an Arab village of Silwain, and got on a bike. All graves, all graves, all graves, all graves, all the way up right there. All Jewish graves, yeah, all Jewish graves. Those are tour buses up there. And then Gat Shemin, the Garden of Gat Shemin is right there. You see it? Gethsemane, right there. 
All right, well, that was a geography lesson that I wanted to give you. And uh, let me go back to this slide over here. I'll come back to this one. Let's see. This clicker will work. No, I think I froze the computer. Okay, geography lesson over. Let's read. Are you ready? Go to Mark 13. We're going to do a lot of reading. Prepare you mentally. As Yeshua came out of the temple, one of the Talmudim, one of the disciples, said to him, Look, Rabbi, what huge stones, what magnificent buildings. You see all these buildings, Yeshua said to him? They will totally be destroyed. Not a single stone will be left standing. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, uh, James, and Yohanan, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what sign will you show when all these things are about to be accomplished? Yeshua began speaking, speaking to them. Watch out. Don't let anyone fool you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will fool many people. And when you hear the noise of wars nearby and the news of wars far off, don't become frightened. Such things must happen. But the end is yet to come. For peoples will fight each other and nations will fight each other. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is the beginning of the birth pains. But you, watch yourselves. They will hand you over to the local Sanhedrin, the, like the judges, and you will be beaten up in synagogues. And on my account, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Indeed, the good news has to be proclaimed first to the Gentiles, so the Goyim. Now, when they arrest you and bring you to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Rather, Say whatever is given when the time comes, for it will not be just you speaking, but it will be Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will turn against their parents and have them put to death, and everyone will hate you because of me. But whoever holds out to the end will be delivered. Now verse 14. Now when you see the abomination of desolation. Now there he's referencing uh, Daniel 9. Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, okay? Three, men three mentions of the domination. When you see this thing called the abomination of desolation, or my translation calls it the abomination that causes devastation. When you see it standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand the illusion. That will be the time for those in Yehudah to escape to the hills. If someone is on the roof, he must not go down and enter his house to take any of his belongings. If someone is in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not happen in winter, for there will be worse trouble at that time than there has ever been from the very beginning. When God created the universe, until now, and there will be nothing like it ever again. Indeed, verse 20 says, if God had not limited the duration of the trouble, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect, those whom he has chosen, he has limited it. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, there's the Messiah, or see, there he is, don't believe him. There will appear false messiahs and false prophets who will be performing signs and wonders for the purpose, if possible, of misleading the chosen. But you watch out. I have told you everything in advance. In those days, after that trouble, now he's gonna quote, from, I believe, Haggai, if I'm not mistaken, he's Joel 2 and Haggai. He says, the sun will grow dark, the moon will stop shining, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels and gather in his chosen from the four winds. 
Your translation may say four corners or something like that. It's an idiomatic phrase, just meaning all over the earth. Um, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now this is, if you pray the Amidah, you know this. This is, sound the great shofar for our freedom. Raise the banner to gather in our exiles. Gather us from the four corners of the earth. You're familiar with that from the Amidah, the Jewish uh, daily prayer? Nobody? Okay, we'll move on. This is something that's already embedded in Jewish theology and thought and eschatology. The idea of gathering in the elect from the four corners. He says in verse 28, let the fig tree teach you its lesson. When its branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you will know that summer is approaching. In other words, like you can kind of tell when it's coming. In the same way, when you see all these things happening, you are to know that the time is near, right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people, now the Greek word there for people, because your translation may say generation, is the word gania, which is like, um, it could be like a generation, but it could be like this kind, this kind of people, this race. It's, it's, it's highly, highly debated term. I'll just leave it at that. It will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. However, when that day and hour will come, no one knows unless they have a big enough calculator. It means there's like a period there, like no one knows. Even if I have like a bunch of yarn all over, like a thing, and tack it to a board, it's not. No, okay. Maybe. So no one knows. Man, that is frustrating, isn't it? Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, not the Father, or just just the Father. I'm sorry. Stay alert. Be on guard, for you don't know when the time will come. I would submit to you. This is Gabe talking now. Someone who claims to know is either a fool or a liar or a foolish liar. Verse 34. It's like a man who travels away from home, puts his servants in charge, each with his own task, and tells the doorkeeper to stay alert. So stay alert, for you don't know when the owner of the house will come, whether it will be the evening, the midnight, the, the time the cock crow, or the morning. You don't want him to come suddenly and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, stay alert. Okay, go with me in Matthew 24. This is... The other, uh, this is the other version of this, okay? Matthew 24, are you there? You guys, you guys hanging in there? A lot of, a lot of scripture, right? We're doing good. Matthew 24. As Yeshua left the temple and was going away, now listen for differences, look at for similarities, this is a synoptic gospel. His disciples came and called to his attention to its buildings, but he answered, you see all this? Yes, I tell you, they would be totally destroyed. Not a single stone would be left upon, upon another. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will all these things happen? And what will be the sign that you are coming and that the present age? What do your translations say there? End of the age. Okay. You see, see um, let me stop here and pause real quick and explain. Jewish eschatology, the end times within Jewish theology at that time, has a division. There's this present age. And then there's the age to come. The Olam Hazeh, the Olam Haba. Olam Hazeh, Olam Haba. Okay? All right, so that's, they're like, what, what will be the, the, the coming, the, the times? How will we know when this, this Olam Hazeh, this age that is, it is now, is ending, and it will be the beginning of the Olam Haba? Yeshua replied, don't watch out. Don't let anyone fool you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. You will hear the noise of wars nearby and no news of wars far off. See to it that you don't become frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come. 
war. Peoples will fight each other. Nations will fight each other. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. See, Mark didn't have that part, did it? All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. At that time, you will be arrested and handed over to be punished and put to death. And all people will hate you because of me. At that time, many will be trapped and betraying and hating one another. Many false prophets will appear and fool many people. And many people's love will grow cold because of an increase of lawlessness. Anomias. But whoever holds out to the end will be delivered. And this good news about the kingdom will be announced throughout the whole world as a witness to all the Gentiles. It is then that the end will come. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, again, he's quoting Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, which spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. So he's getting a little more specific in the holy place. Let the reader understand the illusion. That will be the time for those in Yehuda to escape to the hills. If someone is on the roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone is in the field, he must not turn back and get his coat. What a terrible time this will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to escape in the winter or on Shabbat. See, Matthew has Shabbat there. For there will be trouble, then worse than there has ever been, from the beginning of the world until now. There will be nothing like it again. Indeed, if the length of this time had not been cut short, not one would survive. For the sake of those who have been chosen, and that word chosen there is eclectos. It's where we get um, someone, you say someone who's kind of choosy about like different things, like clothing. They're very eclectic. That's that word, okay? Eclectos. The chosen, it's, its length will be limited. At that time, if someone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. For there will be appear false messiahs and false prophets performing great miracles, amazing things. So as to fool even the eclectos, if possible. There, I have told you in advance. So if people say to you, listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Or look, he's hidden away in a secret room, don't believe it. For when the Son of Man comes, it will be like lightning that flashes out of the east and fills the sky to the western horizon. In other words, everyone's going to know, all right? Wherever there's a dead body, that's where you find the vultures. Weird, that's weird, right? Random. What? That'll make more sense when we get to Luke. But immediately, following the trouble of those times, he's quoting Joel 2, Haggai 2. Here he goes. The sun will grow dark, the moon will stop shining, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels with the great shofar, right? The Amidah. Sound the, sh the great shofar for our freedom. Raise the banner to gather in our exiles and gather us from the four corners of the earth. There, he's almost quoting the um, Amidah verbatim. Sound the great shofar, and they will gather together his chosen from the four winds, one end of heaven to the other. Now let the fig tree teach you his lesson. When its branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you know that summer is approaching. In the same way, when you see all these things, you are to know that the time is near, right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But when that day or hour will come, no one knows, period. Not the angels in heaven, not the son, only the father. So that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that sometimes people think that they can crack a code or something about his second return when even Yeshua says he doesn't know. That's, that's intense. For the son of man's coming will be just as, just as in the days of Noah. Back then, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, taking wives and becoming wives, right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. But remember, Genesis also says that the earth was filled with this stuff called Hamas, violence, right? So in their minds, it was like happy-go-lucky, 
but under the current, there seems to be in Noah's time, this stuff called Hamas, violence. So would that be the same here? At this, this, the time of the coming of the Son of Man, that there would be like this happy-go-lucky, we all fool ourselves in thinking, giving, taking, marriage, drinking, blah, blah, blah. And then like, but under the current, there's a lot of Hamas. There's a lot of exploitation and violence. Hmm. So where am I at? 38. Back then, before the flood, people were, were eating and drinking. Take our that. Verse 39. And they didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them away. It will be just like that when the Son of Man comes. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left behind. There will be two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left behind. So stay alert because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But you do know this, that the owner of the house, uh, had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you too must always be ready for the Son of Man will come when you're not expecting. Who is the faithful and sensible servant? whose master puts them in charge of the household staff to give them their food at the proper time. It will go well with that servant if he is found doing his job when his master comes. So in other words, you don't have to try to figure all this stuff out. Just do your job, right? That's what he's saying. Just feed the people. Just do your job. As long as I find you doing that, you're good. But if a servant is wicked and he says to himself, my master is taking a long time, and he starts beating up his fellow servants and spends his time arguing about things on the internet that are trivial anyways, and, he, and, he, and he, then his master will come on a day when the servant does not expect at a time he doesn't know. And he will cut him in two and put him with the hypocrites where people will wail and they will grind their teeth. Ooh. Okay, let's go to Luke 17. You guys hanging in there? You getting all this? Okay. We're going through it fast, but we're covering a lot of ground. Luke 17. Look at, me, look, look at verse 20. Luke 17, 20. This is kind of like, this is kind of dovetails what he was just saying. It's important we pick this up right here. Verse 20, Luke 17, 20. We're all in the synoptics here, right? The Pharisees asked Yeshua when the kingdom of God would come. So here we have the Pharisees asking. The kingdom of God, he answered, does not come with visible signs, nor will people be able to say, look, here it is, or it's over there, because you see the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see even one day of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will say, look right there, or see over there, but don't run off, don't follow them, because the Son of Man, in his day, will be like lightning that flashes and lights up the sky from one horizon to the other. But first, he must endure horrible sufferings and be rejected by this generation. Also, it would be like the time of the Son of, the son of Man would be like uh, it was at the time of Noah. People ate and drank, and women married, men married, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the time of Lot, people ate and drank, bought and sold, planted and built. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Now let's jump over to chapter 21, Luke 21. So he's pausing and go to Luke 21, verse 5. This is the last portion we read here. Luke 21, verse 5. Guys hanging in there? I left my water bottle somewhere. Oh, there it is. Luke 21, 5. That's it. As some people were remarking about the temple, they say, like, how beautiful is the stonework and, and the memorial decorations were. He said, a time is coming when what you see here will be totally destroyed and not a single stone will be left standing. And they asked him, Rabbi, if this is so, when will these events take place? Fair question, right? And what sign will you show that they are about to happen? And he answered, watch out, don't be fooled, for many will come in my name saying, does it sound familiar to you guys? Yeah. 
And they will say, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has come. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and revolutions, don't panic. For these things must happen first, but the end will follow immediately. Then he told them, people will fight against each other. Nations will fight each other. And there will be great earthquakes. There will be epidemics. Luke adds epidemics, huh? And famines in various places. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will arrest you and persecute you, hand you over to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors. This will all be on account of me, but it will prove an opportunity for you to bear, my, bear witness of me. So make up your minds not to worry. Rehearse your defense beforehand, for I myself will give you an eloquence and a wisdom that no adversary will be able to resist or refuse. You will be betrayed even by your parents, your brothers, your relatives and friends. Some of you, they will have put to death. And everyone will hate you because of me. Sounds like a prosperity doctrine, right? No. <laughs> but not a hair of your head will be lost. By standing firm, you will, you will save your lives. However, when you see in Yerushalayim, it's surrounded by armies, then you are to understand that she is about to be destroyed. Those in Yehuda must escape to the hills. And those inside the city must get out. And those in the country must not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. When everything that is written about the Tanakh and the scriptures will come true. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. For there will be great distress in the land and the judgment on the people. Some will fly by the edge of the sword. Others will be carried out into the countries of the Gentiles. And Yerushalayim will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles has run its course. There will appear signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the earth. And nations will be in anxiety and bewilderment at the sound and the surge of the sea. As people faint with fear at the prospect of what is overtaking the world. For the powers in heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with tremendous power and glory. And these things will start to happen. Stand up, hold your head high, because your redemption is drawing nigh. Then he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree. Indeed, all the fig trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves that summer is coming close. In the same way, when you see these things taking place, you are to know that the kingdom of God is near. You got four more verses. Yes, I tell you that this people, this Genea or Genea, will certainly not pass away before all this has happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But keep watch over yourselves, or your hearts will become dulled by carousing and drunkenness and the worries of everyday life. And that day will be sprung upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will close in on everyone, no matter where they live, throughout the whole world. So stay alert. Always praying that you will have the strength to escape all the things that will happen and stand in the presence of the Son of Man. We just read a lot, didn't we? This is called, these three chapters are called the Olivet Discourse. Why do you think it's called the Olivet Discourse? Because he's speaking this on the Mount of Olives. If someone wants to come up and try to mess with that. Anthony's smart enough, you can do it. The Mounts of Olives, he's speaking this. Now, let me pause here and just say that this topic, end times stuff, like this is a really dense series of chapters, right? There's a lot of futuristic, really intense, apocalyptic seeming stuff right in here. This is one of my least favorite topics to teach. <laughs> if you know me, you know that, uh, that I don't touch end times stuff rarely ever why admittedly i find it hard to understand and to piece together 
I dislike teaching topics around which I have a lack of confidence and clarity. This week, I set out to study the Olivet Discourse, and I started getting my yarn and my timelines and my board all, you know, I started doing all that and taking notes and trying to, let's figure it out, let's figure it out. But then I stopped. <laughs> Thank you. You see, I have paid for and I have taken college classes on prophetic books of the Bible. And I've walked out of each lecture with a looser grasp on how I think it'll all play out. That's something I used to be ashamed of. I used to think I was like, because I'm like a leader or a teacher, you know, I have to have all this figured out and I have to have a firm stance on how all this will play out. But the more time that's transpired, the more I've studied these things, the more I've looked at this and really objectively analyzed it, the more I'm just like, hey gang, let's just hang on tight and be alert and be found faithful, right? And let's see how it all plays out. The second reason I dislike teaching on end time stuff, or what we would call eschatology, is I have observed over the years, listen close, I have observed over the years that those who have an unusual obsession with biblical prophecy, they do so to the detriment and the exclusion of something more pressing and urgent in their lives, i.e. their marriage their family, a spirit of pride that they need to deal with, a stronghold of sin or an addiction in their life. Now, I'm not saying that if you really enjoy the study of biblical prophecy that you have like some kind of secret sin or you're failing at something, study away. I'm just saying, and remember, that your daily life and the training of your family should take precedence over your desire to unravel all these cryptic texts and predictions. Dopamine is a powerful force in your brain. So let me just come right out and say, if you're here today, and we have visitors, you know, and stuff, but if you're here today and you're hoping to get a dopamine fix from Gabe Rutledge unraveling the deepest mysteries of the Olivet Discourse and Messiah's return, I will warn you in advance that I'm going to disappoint you. Okay? But maybe we'll, we'll pray here in a minute and you can sneak out real quick and do it discreetly. Thirdly, this topic can be divisive. The third reason I dislike this topic, and like I, I don't dislike this topic, I dislike teaching this topic. It can be divisive and for no good reason. Do you guys think, now put yourselves in the, in the sandals of the people standing there on the Mount of Olives. As they're listening to this discourse, put yourselves in that, close your eyes, do whatever. Do you think you understand 100% of it? So you're speaking the same language. You're there in person. You have the temple to your back. You go to the synagogue. You hear the scriptures read in the original language. Do you think you understand 100% of this? So who are we to think and who am I to claim that here I am 6,000 miles away, a few languages removed, 2,000 years later, and I can just like, here you go, I wrote a book. <laughs> right? Now, I came and my family came to Dothan Messianic Fellowship, to Dothan, Alabama, to, with God's grace, help build a multi-generational community of Yeshua followers who are firmly aware of their identity and Messiah, understand the fundamentals of their faith, and are confident in their role and function as an embassy of the kingdom of Yeshua here in Dothan, Alabama. I did not come to tickle your brains. You haven't realized that in three and a half years. Besides, that's just weird. The Bible, 
when viewed as a whole, is not obsessed with stuff like we just read. It's not obsessed with this future apocalyptic unraveling of the world. The Bible is obsessed with you living in accordance with his commands and the teachings of Yeshua. Make sense? So I think we should be obsessed with the same thing. Why do you think Yeshua waited to the end of his ministry to talk about the, the, the end of times? I think he waited to the end. I have a theory. Because he didn't want his disciples to, to, to argue about it and divide over it. He's like, I'm going to put this to the end. I, don't want, I, can't, I can't be around all the arguing this is going to incite. So what I'm going to do today is give you some guiding principles when you do want to look at biblical prophecy. All the kids are tucked in bed. You know, you read them their nighttime story. You pray with them, whatever you got to do. You know, and you go, you, you log into this um, this horrible tree of the knowledge of good and evil called the internet, and you want to look up and you want to study eschatology. First of all, what is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of the end times. I want to give you four main views that when you look up, you know, anything, any article, read any book, they're going to tell you, hey, there's four main views. Okay, now, you might have a fifth view, you might have a sixth view, you might not fit any of these, you might have all of them. I don't know, but this is just like what a, a typical seminary college textbook is going to tell you. There's four main views, okay? The first one we call premillennialism. Let me tell you what that means. It's the belief that Yeshua will physically return to earth, which we call the second coming, before the time period we call the millennium, the thousand years, which is a literal thousand year golden age of peace. The doctrine is called premillennialism because it holds that Yeshua's physical return to earth will occur prior to the millennium. Okay? Premillennialism is based upon a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, which describes Yeshua's reign in a period of a thousand years. Premillennialism, which is divided into historic and dispensational premillennialism, it's like a two for one. Um, the main difference between the two is historic premillennialists don't see like a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, okay? But rather, they're all kind of like one unified organization or one unified group of people, okay? That's historic pre-millennialism. Now, dispensational pre-millennialism. Can I pause and take a quick one? It says that God works in dispensations. That there was a age of, the, the, of Israel. There was an age of Israel. Now there's an age, a dispensation of the church. And so they would see those as two different entities. And that we're living now in like a church age, okay? That we're like, this is now, Israel is on pause, or someone even goes so far as to say, Israel is done forever, and now the church is the, is the real deal, okay? Let's move on to post-millennialism. They believe that the millennium is an era, but not necessarily a literal thousand years, during which the Messiah will reign over the earth, not for a literal, uh, but not necessarily from a literal and earthly throne but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change people's lives. After this gradual gospelizing or Christianization of the world, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. This is called post-millennialism because by its view, Christ will return post the millennium. Okay? You guys good so far? Getting all this? Yeah, it confused me too. Don't worry. The last one we're going to talk about is Ah, millennialism. Now, anytime you see the prefix ah or a in front of a, a word like that, it means without or against even, devoid of, 
Okay, all millennialists believe that the kingdom of God was already inaugurated at Christ's resurrection. That's why sometimes they're called now millennialists. They, uh, at which point they say he gained victory over both Satan and the curse, and that Messiah is even now reigning at the right hand of the Father over his church. After this present age has ended, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. This emerged, some say, in the 5th century and was championed by a church father named St. Augustine. Augustine. Which am I? Where do I fall? Which are you? So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to just bear, bear everything here to you, right? I typically, I take, if, if you had to put me in a box, I take a historic, typically historic, premillennialist view. That's, that's my view. Now, you might be different, and that's hunky-dory. But again, this is not something, this is not a, a point of division that we should ever break off fellowship one another. Um, this isn't a salvific issue, right? We all agree that. Okay? And you might disagree, but maybe God put that person in your life to learn how to disagree with people and still love them, right? So that's where I fall. I'm typically a historic premillennialist. Now, I don't like everything and all that they espouse. I don't like all, I don't buy it with long and sinker, but that's typically where I fall. Okay? But what I want to do is, um, is go through some pitfalls of prophecy. Let me see if I can get this back in my present mode here. Yeah, here we go. Pitfalls of prophecy. So as you're reading biblical prophecy, I want to give you five and leave you with five guiding principles that you can take with you and look at biblical prophecy, okay? Whether you're an amillennialist, whether you're a premillennialist, whatever you are, you can use these five principles that I've, I've developed. Number one, if you're over 30 years old, you know what this is. What is this? It's a map, yeah. Now... I had to dig this out somewhere. Guys, under 30, this is like this is like what we use to get around. Yeah. And you got GPS. Yeah, like we, we use this. Okay, so this is a this is a map of Florida. And I, I grew up in Florida and, and you know this is this is this is gonna tell me how to get to, to, to like different beaches and stuff, right? And I didn't have this thing called a smartphone or a GPS. I had to like actually plan out my route and look at this and be like, okay, there's this Major inter this major interstate that goes through here, I could probably make a time, I could take back roads. But if you got lost, you had to open this thing up. How many of you got lost when you had to get a road out? Right? Yeah, a lot of you, okay. And, wow, okay. I never have. And the, the most annoying thing about these is just like, you never, you can never fold it back the way it came, right? It's so frustrating. It's like, oh, I just ball it up and shove it in your blood box. I can't do it, I'm lost. But no, this is, this is a road map. And isn't it, it's like a relic of the past, right? Good times. I used to have this, um, yeah, I used to have this road atlas book. <laughs> you still use one, yeah. I used to have this road atlas book that I bought at Walmart, and I had, I had every road that I ever traveled down highlighted. And my goal for some reason was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get all the roads highlighted in Florida. But yeah, it's a road atlas. Now, sometimes we treat biblical prophecy like this. Where we sit down and we're like, I'm going to map all of this out. The end times, the, the, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Messiah, I'm going to figure it all out using biblical prophecy. So we go through every prophecy in the Bible about the second coming of Messiah. We look at it, we're like, okay, yeah, I've got a pretty good picture here. And we write it all out and we think, okay, I've got a good grasp on that. Right? There's a danger in that. 
And the number one danger is that you have a pretty good chance of being wrong. Thank you, Marvin. You have a pretty good chance of being wrong. Here, Marvin, you want to fold that up for me? <laughs> I'm going to propose that we don't treat our biblical prophecy like a roadmap. Where we're like, okay, I know every little turn, I know where I'm going with this. But rather, you treat biblical prophecy like a road sign. Okay? Now, you're familiar with the map. You look, you've looked at the map a few times, right? But if you get on the interstate, let's say we get down on I-10. We could use road signs. Let's say we wanted to go to Miami Beach. From here to Miami Beach. Once we got on I-10, do you think we could successfully use road signs to navigate ourselves to Miami Beach? Yeah. Now, we know where Miami Beach is, roughly. We know, okay, it's at the southern, southeastern tip of Florida, right? Interstate 95. But the interstate will guide us there. And you're looking at these signs, and you're like, okay, it just said, it just said the exit from Miami Beach is like five miles ahead. Hit the odometer thing, wait five, minutes, five miles, and then you're there. You get off of the exit, or exit number something, something. We could navigate where that is. Now, we are familiar with Miami Beach. We maybe have been there. We know the general direction, right? We know, okay, at some point I'm going to merge south onto I-75, or you might keep going onto to I-95 and then turn south on I-95, but you can trust those signs. I'm going to submit to you that biblical prophecy should be looked at and viewed like those road signs and not like a road map where you know, you think you know, every little turn and every little thing. Every, you know, treat it like a road. So when you're encountering the news, for instance, and you see a story, a headline on the news, you should turn off, by the way. You see a story on the news. You can say, ah, there we are. I know that my turn is up here. Ah, there's another. Okay, yeah, I know where we are now. Yeah, we just have a little bit further to go. You know what I'm saying? You, you catch my drift? Okay. I think, I think you'll have, you have better success doing that. And, and number two, one of the other pitfalls of prophecy is reading the prophecy in a vacuum. Not taking into the consideration the context with an S at the end. There's multiple contexts that you have to take into consideration when you're reading a prophecy. Like, for instance, if you don't know history, you don't know that 40 years after the Olivet Discourse, the Romans come in, lay siege to Jerusalem, and level Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground. So in some ways, that's been fulfilled, that Jerusalem has been leveled. So if you know that, you know, okay, yeah, that's been fulfilled. Now, I'm, a, I'm of the mindset that there is a cyclical fulfillment to that. That the temple keeps getting destroyed. It keeps more people constantly. You look at the history of Israel. When you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there was an abomination of desolation, so to speak. But you look at the history of Israel. You've got like the Babylonians. You've got Antiochus Epiphanes, the story of Hanukkah. You've got the first conquest of Rome. You've got the second conquest of Rome. Right? It, the, the cycle continues. This seems to be a cycle. That when God's people build a house for him, and it becomes corrupt, that God uses foreign armies to destroy it. It just seems to be a general theme. Now, will that happen again in the future? I don't know. We have a problem, and a, a clear problem. What is that problem? God's house isn't there. As some would say, well, to have an abomination of desolation, you just need an altar built on the Temple Mount. Yeah, okay. But you know what? I'm going to treat prophecy like a road sign. Now, when I see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, which, by the way, us withdrawing from Afghanistan in the way we did, sent shockwaves and communicated to all the nations around Israel something that should not have been communicated, by the way. That all the nations surrounding Israel were like, hmm, I see an opportunity. Just saying. But 
all the nations surrounding Israel. Do you think there could be in the future like nations that come up against Jerusalem and surround it and, and in a way like again fulfill the prophecy of the Olivet Discourse? Yeah, absolutely. You're aware of the context, right? Aware of the context. And the third pitfall, Americanizing the prophecy. This is our favorite thing to do. This is our favorite thing to do right here. Oh, Donald Trump lost the election. This must be the start of the Great Tribulation. No, no, stop, don't do that. You're thinking, you're looking at it like American eyes. Our elections have very little to do with biblical prophecy. They might, they might be connected some way. Or the economy, oh, the GDP dropped this much. It's the tribulation starting. Or, or it just could be that like, I don't know, America is just about to hit economic hard times. I don't know. But you need to look at biblical prophecy through Israeli-centric eyes. That much of the prophecy given in the Bible is written to the people of Israel. And read it as if you're reading it from their vantage point. You understand what I'm saying? I think it, I think it would change your paradigm a little bit. Don't Americanize the prophecy. It's a pet peeve of mine. You can't tell. Here's another one. Capitalizing on the prophecy. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. These are the guys who like, they go to like um, Amazon and they buy a, a prayer shawl and, and then they, they write a book with the words like, um, uh, maybe, maybe you've read the book, with the words like decoding or the word mystery or the word apocalypse or the word uh, revealed or the words lost books. Right? And then they, they go church to church with their prayer shawl on and they give these talks and they sell these books. Right? That's some good marketing. They've seized an opportunity. Right? They made a buck off it. Don't do that. You aspiring author in this room, I hope you're here. Don't title your books Mystery, Apocalypse, Revealed, Decoded, something, something, something. Don't do that. And don't use Sanskrit in the title. It's just a bad font. Don't do that. But don't sensationalize the prophecy so that you can make a buck off of it. Don't do that. You don't want to be guilty of that. All right? The fifth pitfall, failing to admit your mistake. Mm. So when I was helping rebuild that wheelchair ramp at the harbor, I was doing the spindles. Andreas and I were doing the spindles. We were, we were putting the thin little spindles on the, on the wheelchair ramp. And um, these things, they got to be spaced out perfectly. And we, we would, Andreas can attest to this, we would get all these spindles on there and I would staple out, nailed them on there. I get about five or six, and then Andreas, what would we do? We take a step back. We get out to the road. We'd like to stand out on the road and look at the spindles we thought were 100% level. And you look at those things and you're like, was I cross-eyed when I did that? What on earth? Now, Andreas and I could have been like, okay, you know, let's just keep going, no one will notice, you know. Let's just keep, let's do the rest of them level from here on out. We could have done that, but what is better to do? To go back and be like, Andreas, hey, let's pull that one off, let's pull that one off. Let's take, let's take them all off and just do them right. You know what I'm saying? And I think sometimes we walk into biblical prophecy and we make up this thing, this emphatic, like, this has to happen, this is only in the past, or this is only in the future, or this and that. And then we end up being wrong. Right? This prophet told me, I heard from the word of the Lord that he's going to win the election. Uh-oh, I heard toes crunching. I heard different. So, if that ends up being wrong, do you have the humility to say, I was wrong. Guys, I apologize. 
I was wrong on that. For me, personally, I would never say I heard a word from the Lord. Oh. Failing to admit our mistakes. Now, guys, there's a difference between falsely uttering a thus saith the Lord or I heard a word from the Lord. I heard a guy, someone sent me a video, like, like six people sent me the same video. The guy said in the video, I know when I hear from the Lord. So miss, there's a difference between that and then misinterpreting existing prophecy. There's a difference, okay? The former is a total discreditation of your teaching and ministry, while the latter simply demands your admittance that you got it wrong. But continually misinterpreting prophecy doesn't make you a false prophet. It just makes you look foolish. So if I take my child, let's say, let's give an example. If I take my child to the dentist because of a toothache, and the dentist pulls the first tooth, and it ends up being a wrong tooth, do you go back to that dentist? If you're in the army, yeah. Okay, let's say you go back and he pulls another tooth, and it's the wrong tooth again. No, even your child would be like, Dad, that dentist is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm, I'm down two teeth, and he's still, I still have a toothache. Oh, you got another thing. Stop taking me there. When I was a child, my dad was such a cheapskate. <sighs> he would take me to this dentist that, that saved money on pain medication and didn't use pain medication. And they would pin me down on the chair to pull teeth without pain medication. And I'd be screaming. What was his name? Dr. Demetrius. This sounds evil. <laughs> I'd be screaming like, picture like eight-year-old Dave. Ah! They're like pinning me down in the chair, pulling my teeth out with no Novocaine. Oh. Stacey wonders why I have problems. Mm. But, no, if your, kid, if your kids would catch on, they'd be like, dude, don't go back to that dentist. He is foolish. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? How much more so with the word of God? If someone misinterprets prophecy, first one, ah, you got that wrong. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you like this far away now. Ah, uh, you got the second one wrong. Okay, I'm gonna hit the X at the top of the tab there and close that tab out. I'm gonna unsubscribe, right? Do that, do that. All right, I'm gonna do something very risky now with what little time I have left here. I'm gonna pull out what I think I know from the text. And I'm gonna say, you know, these are the things I think are pretty evident in the text. Now, these are things from the Olivet Discourse that I could read and I could say, okay, I'm pretty certain that's gonna happen. But these are things that if they don't happen, my faith is not hanging on these things. You understand what I'm saying? If they don't happen, my faith is not hanging on these things. Number one, I believe humanity will continue to become more and more violent and exploit one another and call it good. I believe that natural disasters will continue to increase. I believe that false messiahs will come before the real one does. I believe that people will apostatize from the true faith. And I believe that if we're to take this thing called the abomination of desolation to be a future event, that means there must be an altar at a minimum. I believe that Yeshua will return. I believe that he has not yet returned. I have to clarify that because there are people that... Mm. I believe that he will likely return soon, but I might die first and so might you. I believe that he will come with a loud shofar 
and on a cloud, and it will be like lightning from east to west. I believe there will be no mistaking of his coming. I believe that he will first appear in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. I believe that he will resurrect those who are dead in him, and I believe that he will inaugurate this era we call the Messianic Era. That's what I know from the text. Now, you might have pulled out some more. You might have found less than that. But that's what I know. So where do we all go with this? Where do we go with this? There's always like this practical application thing I try to do, right? That's what a good teacher does, right? Where do we go with this? Well, the founders of our faith, the great rabbis of old, they taught that the sage is greater than the prophet. What does that mean? Why? In other words, I would rather a hundred times over teach you to be sages than inspire you to toy with the words of prophecy. Because the sage, the sage takes the ideals of the prophet and finds a way to turn them into like practical application. The sage is greater than the prophet. So the sage looks at the words of prophecies, repent, 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 or else this. The sage goes, ah, I think we need to be doing this. Course correction, guys. Course correction. All right? Side note, guys. A teacher who erroneously tells me that there is an 80% chance Yeshua's return will happen before the end of this month deserves only 20% of my time and attention. A teacher who erroneously tells me that there is a 100% chance that Yeshua will return by the end of this month deserves 0% of my time and attention if they do it erroneously. This is near and dear to my heart, guys. You know that. Because I believe repetitively, falsely predicting the future with the Bible leads people into questioning their faith and doubting their faith. In other words, if it doesn't happen by the end of the month, who's now doubting their faith? I believe it's treating the Bible like a crystal ball, which aren't kosher. Plus, I believe, and most importantly, it profanes the sacred name of my creator. And remember, time is the false prophet's worst enemy. Say, okay, I hear that. Time to wait. I hope you're right. Time to wait. Time is the true student of the words, best friend. So in closing, be a sage. Don't toy with the words of the prophet. Can we in this room right now, can we summarize the Olivet Discourse that we just read? We read three different versions of it. Can we summarize all of that to one word? And if so, what is it? You guys tell me. Wait. Wait. Trouble. Alert. Watch. Watch. Trouble. Trouble. Preparation. Prepare. They're all good. Any others? Get your heart right. Yeah. Get that? your heart right. Okay. <laughs> 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 I'm just messing with Shannon. I'm picking on you. That's okay. You went 400% over the allotted word. Yeah, I, I came up with like readiness. I came up with like anticipation. And I came up with courage. And that's good courage. How fearful is our society right now? We need some courage, don't we? So take that one word and live it out. Live it out. If it's courage, if it's being prepared, if it's alert, if it's trouble, if it's whatever, live it out. I always say, if you hang around me more than five minutes, you hear me say this, 
We should live like he's returning today. But we should teach like he's not returning for another hundred years. What does that mean? Be ready like he's coming today. Be ready. Be found faithful today. But if he doesn't, are your grandkids going to carry on the faith? Are you teaching your kids to teach your kids, to teach their kids, to teach their kids? So that the torch of Yeshua can be passed from generation to generation. So that this Torah scroll that's in this cabinet can be read 50 years from now by people who are descended of the people in this room. Are we teaching that way? Or are we like, Yeshua is coming soon. La vida loca. YOLO. Now teach like he's not coming back for another 100 years. Live like he's coming today. I'm going to pray. This is your chance to sneak out if you're not here. If you're here for the wrong reason. If you wanted a dopamine fix. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that Yeshua is returning. May it be soon and in our days. And may we be found faithful at the time that he's given, the giftings that he's given us. Hashem Yeshua, amen. amen. So I'm going to take Q&A. We've got a few minutes. If you have a comment or a question, um, just that's okay. Just be ready for a lot of I don't knows from me today. Yes, Karen. Weatherman makes a prediction every day, right? Yeah. Is the weatherman ever wrong? All the time. But it doesn't mean like, okay, he, he be sh- sh- strip him of his credentials. You know, like don't ever let him get up there again and do that. No, I mean the weatherman's working with the knowledge that he has and the tools that he has, but he's doing something that's like really hard to do, and that's predict the weather. He's doing the best of his ability, and I can't imagine the flack that, that poor guy gets or poor gal gets. But yeah, I mean, if you the weatherman would get up there and be like, guys, 100% certain there's going to be there's going to be rain at 3 p.m. It's going to last for 15 minutes. And uh, you know that's going to clear up. And we're going to the temperature's going to raise to 85 degrees. The humidity of 72. If you would do all that, and, and and he did that like three times in a row, then we'd be like, okay, uh, this weatherman is he's he's just he's just wrong. You know, I think that's that's you get into the prophetic realm at that point a little bit. Yeah, but I like that division. That's that's, that's interesting. Absolutely, Jackie. She's saying that as those people are listening to the Olivet Discourse, some of them lived to see the destruction of the temple 40 years later in 70 AD. And they were like, oh, it's being fulfilled. This is it. You predicted this. Yeah, absolutely. And so we live looking retrospectively to that event and say it was fulfilled. And some of us would say, and it's going to be again. 
or some of us would say, there's a high likelihood it's going to be again. But you have, and Jackie, that brings up a good point, you have people that are called preterists. Preterism believes that everything has already happened in the past. That that was, that was fulfilled in 70 AD or something like that. The all of that discourse was already mostly done. You have full preterists and you have, far, uh, uh, <laughs> you have partial preterists that believe that some of that was fulfilled, but not all of that was fulfilled. So just, you can, um, you can take that uh, and, and do what you want with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm typically lean towards the, it's a cyclical event in human history that God's house be desecrated somehow, unfortunately. Um, that's, that's simply where I lean. The biggest hiccup in my view, though, the biggest dilemma in my view is that there is no God's house right now. You could say, you could, you could say well, maybe that applies to like, the followers of Yeshua because we're like a temple. Um, and you could say maybe the mark of the beast is like the abomination of desolation. But, you know, it's... We talked about stones. Yeah, so it's like... Um, there's a lot of directions you can go with it, but any other uh, thoughts or comments? Yeah, Jason, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the location being the city of David as far as, uh, the as far as the temple? Yeah, it's funny. I was actually, as I was putting that slide up there, um, let me repeat his question real quick as I'm going back to the slide. Um, Jason is asking, what are, what are my thoughts about the temple being here? Like the prior location of the temple was here instead of here. To that, I say, I don't buy it. And I, I know a lot of people who teach that, but um, I see an overwhelming amount of evidence to point to actually being up here. Some people would say that that was actually the Antonia Fortress, and that this is where the Temple Mount once stood, and that you can still build a temple there, and then we can get the temple and all that stuff. But um, I just don't buy it. Uh, there's too much about this hill right here in this plateau, too much evidence. We're, they're, they're using um, sonar to find water cisterns below and caverns below that actually fit the description of some of the, the writings in the Mishnah. Um, and they're finding those beneath this, this hill right here. Um, they're finding timbers in the Alaska Mosque. They found timbers in the roof when they went to repair the roof of the Alaska Mosque. They found timbers that fit to the T, the description of some of the timbers that would have been in the temple in the first century. There's a lot, there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much more than that, but um, yeah, you're right though. If, if, if people said, okay, the, this was the actual location of the temple, then we can rebuild the temple, then yeah, I mean, you don't have to worry about the Dome of the Rock being here. You can rebuild the temple and then you get the abomination desolation. But um, like Lars Innerson is a guy we, we have come teach and he, he's like, no, I don't, I don't buy the, the city of David as the temple. I don't buy that. A lot of people just, just don't buy it. People that I really respect on, but it's an interesting theory. And really at the end of the day, um, you know, the tabernacle for instance, it, it stood, it, didn't, it wasn't even in Jerusalem for I think up to 400 years. It was in the city of Shiloh for 400 years. So um, I don't know that the location, the tabernacle moved around a lot, but as they're wandering in the wilderness, but eventually I believe that it did, it did come to rest here. That was the temple. Um, a good question, though.